Welcome to another episode of Training Data, a podcast series by Cosmic Works. This is the second part of our two-part series talking about the founding of SpaceNet and our current work with the SpaceNet partners. Since the recording of this episode, we've had two new partners join. Uh, first, Capella Space, and secondly, Topcoder. So enjoy the show. While the development and release of data sets uh, is critical, we also knew that just putting data out there was the first step to building a community. And if we use ImageNet as a guide, uh, one of the reasons ImageNet grew in popularity and in many ways became the gold standard for computer vision research at the time, it was that they had an integrated annual data science challenge that uh, corporations and researchers participated in. And the results of those were featured at the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference, NeurIPS, uh, formerly known as NIPS. And as a result, you now had both uh, a high-quality data set, but then you also had researchers putting out code and models. So you start building up this whole ecosystem of resources that people can jump into, whether they're, uh, in our case, familiar with geospatial or not. And we're diving into the section now where we're talking about how we structured our challenges, specifically to generate uh, more open-source uh, deep learning models designed for geospatial data, specifically for the data that we were open sourcing. And so for us, you know, the big thought was, how do we structure these things, right? All, from all the benign questions to, uh, do we need cash prizes? How do we issue the cash prizes? All the way then to what technical challenges, as Todd alluded to, what technical challenges do we ask people uh, to undertake? And how do we know that we're pushing them um, uh, towards tractable problems, yet challenging problems. And so one of the big things that we wanted to, to focus on was systematically unpacking uh, the foundational mapping problem, so incrementally adding complexity over time. And so we've done that over the course of four, now five challenges. Uh, Todd, why don't you just start from the top and explain us how we structured the challenges, and then we'll dig into a little bit of the details. For each challenge, we offer uh, you know, $50,000 in uh, prize money to the top participants. And so you know, from the beginning, we've encouraged academia, startups, uh, corporations, um, other public sector organizations to participate in the challenges as well. And so the idea, as you said earlier, Ryan, is that um, this is really a, um, a way to help accelerate excitement um, and innovation. Uh, by uh, having the algorithms and source code released. Um, but in order to protect IP of uh, different groups that, um, that you know, have an interest in participating, um, but they may not want to release the code, um, they're also able to participate uh, you know, for, for bragging rights, uh, and they can forego submitting their, their code um, if, you know, to be open sourced. Um, but we, we definitely encourage uh, you know, those that, um, that want to compete for the prize money and open source the code, which gives, of course is given back to the community uh, for, for future challenges and research to, uh, to participate in that capacity. Yeah, and so then the second piece is, you know, designing these challenges is, is really a non-trivial task. And especially when you think about all the hype that is uh, currently discussed in the AI market or particularly in computer vision, you know, there's a lot of, I would say pressure. There's, a lot of been, there's been a lot of pressure on us and others, right, to focus exclusively on the moonshot problems. And in this case, a moonshot problem would be having a 
model, completely build a foundational map without any human intervention and having perfect scores in all buildings and roads and routes. Right. And the, while there's certainly utility and that's the goal, I think uh, of uh, some of this work, there's a lot of stair step that has to be, or a lot of incremental steps that have to be accomplished before we can even think about doing full map publishing with uh, less human intervention. And so if from our approach, if you look at our, if our challenges, we wanted to start small. And so from the top, right, we first said, well, how can we uh, just look at mapping from one city? Uh, in this case, it was SpaceNet 1 over Rio de Janeiro, and uh, it was focused exclusively on building footprints. And you know, one of the things I always find so funny, and this is an ex if you've heard uh, us present before, you probably heard the story, but I find it really entertaining, and it's a good exemplar, which is when we were preparing to launch and we were talking with some outside groups, one of the things that we heard was, how are you guys going to establish a tiebreaker? Right? What are you going to do? Right? Everyone's going to get, uh, and we use a modified F1, which we'll talk about, but everyone uses, uh, or in this case, everyone's going to get close to 100 or 1. Uh, uh, so how are you going to manage that? And our response was, well, we think this is a hard problem. We're not, in, we're not anticipating everyone uh, scoring near perfect. And the reality is out of a scale from 0 to 1, uh, the winning implementations for SpaceNet uh, 1 were 2.5. Right, Todd? And so uh, our takeaway was, was that there's a lot of room to grow. And there's some things that we could do to help participants. Uh, but then there's uh, just a lot more model work that needs to be done. And so with that, we said, all right, we kind of set the groundwork with one, but then we wanted to increase uh, complexity. So Alexei, why don't you walk us through some of the things we've done after SpaceNet 1? So uh, mainly focused starting with two and then going to three and four, and then we can jump into five briefly, which is which is getting underway. Yeah, one of the big things that uh, with SpaceNet 1 that came out was there was a data set over the city of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and uh, it was partitioned into three different sets, one in the panchromatic band, then we had a red-green-blue set, and then we had a multispectral set. But the multispectral set wasn't hand-sharpened to align with the red-green-blue uh, imagers. And so one of the things that came out of the Rio de Janeiro uh, challenge was that no one was really touching the multispectral information. Everyone just stuck to the plain red-green-blue. So when we made the switch into SpaceNet 2, uh, one of the first things that we tried to do was capture, going back to the geographic diversity, a few more cities. And so there was a total of four cities present in SpaceNet 2 uh, across a few different continents. So there was Las Vegas uh, here in the United States, Paris, uh, obviously in France, Shanghai in China, and then uh, Khartoum in the in the Sudan. Uh, and so there was some geographic diversity, uh, not enough to be able to train a universal generalizable model, uh, but it's still a lot more than just one city. And one of the additional benefits was that the imagery was able to be pan-sharpened, particularly the multi-spectral bands were pan-sharpened and able to be ingested cleanly as part of a deep learning model. So nice thing here is it, uh, SpaceNet 2 really not only brought out a few more cities, but also exposed the concept of multi-spectral imagery uh, to a lot of people that hadn't worked with it before, right? Traditional CV data sets are exclusively red, green, blue. So this was a great opportunity to play with some additional data. Uh, that goes back into this concept of, you know, traditional CV models don't play well in geospatial imagery. If you take uh, a model that was pre-trained on ImageNet, which is a red, green, blue image data set, 
you have to modify the model architecture to even be able to run it through geospatial imagery just based on the band count. You might even have to, you will certainly have to do some retraining. Uh, so there was that also kind of getting exposed there and you know, getting a sense of how people interacted with this. Uh, one of the big takeaways that we got out of SpaceNet 2 was exactly this problem of generalizability. Even though we had four cities, uh, models trained on three cities performed very poorly on the held out fourth city. Uh, or if you, you know, and vice versa, if you try to train from one city and transfer to three, very poor performance. Uh, but with that being said, SpaceNet 2 was still a good success. Uh, and, you know, we had uh, only building footprints available in that data set, but we exposed the multispectral stuff as well. Uh, and one of the things that was really interesting is that the winner of that particular challenge actually ended up using OpenStreetMap on his or her own initiative to augment the data set to have richer representation. Uh, and that's, you know, how they were able to win that challenge. That kind of clued us in. And so for Pavement 3, uh, which was the same cities as Pavement 2, but what we added was additional set of labels. So we added road network labels uh, so that people were not just challenged to extract buildings, but in particular challenged to extract the road network. And because we didn't just want people to segment out where roads were, we really cared about connectivity in the road network. Uh, Cosmic own Aston Venetian developed a particular metric to capture that particular connectivity. Uh, and then lastly, uh, SpaceNet 4, uh, we really we kind of pivoted away from um, the standards that we had done in two and three, and we really chose to highlight the problem of nadir angles in multispectral or rather overhead imagery. So like you mentioned earlier, there's this concept of the angle at which you take the imagery over the course of the collect. Uh, the angle at which you are heavily affects the imagery. If you're like say 45 degrees off of your target, you're gonna have significant atmospheric noise, a loss of spatial resolution, perspective shifts, right? Uh, going back to occlusion, if you're looking at a wooded area, if you're off nadir, then you're gonna have a lot of occlusion just from the trees. Uh, and so it exposes a lot of unique algorithmic challenges. And so that's again, why we want to share that, that effort with the, the community. Uh, and you know, we found a lot of really interesting uh, nuggets that came out of that. In particular, we weren't really, I don't think we really ever considered the fact that just the time of day affects yeah. the imagery a lot just because of the way the sun shines and reduces. So that was one of the biggest things that I think we took away. And yeah, it was a very interesting set of challenges. Yeah, and then with uh, SpaceNet 5, which is our, our newest, which is, is just getting launched, uh, we're going back to roads, uh, but then building off of SpaceNet 3, uh, we're incorporating uh, another dimension of difficulty, which is estimation of time. Uh, Adam talked about this in, in a previous pod, uh, but we're also then adding uh, four new cities as well, um, including uh, this time for the first time ever, we'll be holding back uh, a mystery city uh, to essentially test uh, participants on a city they've never seen before. And so this to getting to Todd and to Alexei and to Joe's all their points uh, made, it encourages uh, more model generalizability and just by the very nature of adding uh, more geographic scenes, right, hopefully we're helping uh, participants uh, with that goal of being able to build out uh, more robust models. Um, you know, another important aspect, and we, you know, we touched on this briefly, we've talked a ton about it in both our published papers as well as, as blog posts across all of our different groups, is evaluation. Right, this actually is sort of intrinsically tied 
with the labeling process. So if you think about how you want to label, as, as Todd mentioned, a building, you then have to think about how you want to score that. Um, there's a lot of d details we could jump into here, but uh, just at a high level with buildings, right, we, we standardized sort of our, our own evaluation metric that we have stayed consistent with over the course of uh, all the challenges that have focused on buildings. So uh, specifically, right, it's a... Uh, the one aspect about uh, our metric that's interesting is that we've talked about this a little bit before, but we use uh, a modified F1 uh, score. Specifically, uh, we have uh, an IOU threshold or an intersection over union threshold of 0.5. And so if you think about two boxes, uh, one's the ground truth box and then one's your guess, right? Your guess box or your projection has to be at least 50%. Uh, correct in order for us to count that as the detect. And at that point, then we can roll that up into an overall score. Um, that's important because as we've written about previously uh, in other posts and even talked about, if you, if you are to tune that IOU and say you have to be have a threshold of 0.75, so more accurate, uh, that will impact the performance of your models. In this case, it'll probably decline because more at the highest level, you're asking the model to be more precise. Uh, if you're to tune it the other way, you may have a better score. And so what you tune, in this case for a building footprint model evaluation metric, is really predicated upon what you want. If you need a lot of accuracy, you're probably going to tune it one way. If you just want an early count in an area that perhaps hasn't been mapped a lot, you may not care as much about the uh, specific outline and orientation of the structure. Uh, for us, we keep it standard because it's a good way to compare all the models against each other. But that's an important tidbit as you interpret the results that come out of these challenges. Uh, the second piece is on roads, uh, and Alexei mentioned this briefly, is we found that most of the existing road evaluation metrics uh, were focused more exclusively on extracting the pixel mass to so just saying what pixels are the roads. Uh, our, one of our researchers uh, at Cosmic, he's the director of research, uh, Adam Van Etten, said, well, we really want to do more than that. What we really want to score participants on is not just the pixels, but we really want to score them on is their ability to extract routing information because that's why you care about roads. So we uh, set up as a collective uh, our own evaluation called Average Path Like Similarity. Uh, this is something that we're repeating in SpaceNet 5. Uh, there are other metrics uh, that have been out there, uh, emerging metrics, I should say, uh, for roads. Uh, but it's something that we've been uh, particularly passionate about just because we've seen, we saw a lot of good results come out of three. Yeah, right. And I think, uh, you know, you described it really well that, you know, just thinking about um, the metrics and the context of the results that you're trying to drive and how it's um, measured in terms of the utility for the, the end user. So I think, you know, that's, um, it, to me, that's just really clear in terms of both, um, you know, thinking about the thresholds of at, at what level is this output actually going to, to benefit foundational mapping. Um, and then also thinking about, you know, as, as you referenced with the uh, Apple's metric around uh, having the right metrics for the problems that we're trying to solve. So we've uh, you know, had a really great response from the community around this Apple's metric because it's, it's based on uh, you know, existing uh, you know, theory and conventions, but we've applied it to the problem in a way that just um, seems to make a lot of sense. So it's kind of viewed as a custom metric that we're, we're applying here. Uh, so uh, that, that's been a really uh, exciting aspect of this project for me. And I think uh, it applies to, to much of the research across all our organizations. Yeah. And uh, it has been impressive to, to, to see the response and the adoption of that. And 
in, in particularly it's important, you know, you're probably, if you're, you know, when you're thinking about this, all right, these guys are putting out a data set, they're putting out a model before the data set, they're describing all these models. And you may be thinking, wow, is this making it easy for people? And the reality is it, it, it isn't. It's just a good first start for every new challenge we ask. Um, because when you think about it, each one of our challenges will run anywhere from six to eight weeks. And so that's really not a lot of time for either a researcher or a group to unpack a problem, think about it, test different models, upload those models, and then put in what they think is their best solution. And so one of the other things that we've done uh, to help uh, participants during the, the challenge period is to offer them uh, compute credits. And this is something AWS has been essential. And Joe, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, I think there's uh, the, the idea of geographic diversity has come up uh, a couple of times already, uh, and that's super important. But another way that, I, that we think about this is um, diversity in the competitors. Um, and if you remember earlier, I sort of stated some of the goals of the public data set program, which is around democratizing access to data um, and helping to build and engage communities. Um, and that means that everyone needs to have access to the resources to work with this data, right? Which is not true today. Um, and so uh, for a number of the competitions, we look to provide um, infrastructure credits to help groups be able to work with the type of resources that they want to. Uh, this means that they don't necessarily need to work with their laptop, but they can work with high-end GPU instances um, uh, or with frameworks like SageMaker, which is a machine machine learning framework that we, we have. Um, and, and so our goal there is just to make sure that um, groups who want to be involved here aren't kept out by their access to resources. Yeah, and I, and I think that, that dovetails nicely into uh, just looking at the the usage usage rates and impact that we've measured uh, with SpaceNet over the last three years, you know. So if if you take a step back and given all the work we've done from data sets to challenges to research and to putting code out, it's really important to ask: Did we achieve our goal? Are, are we actually building a community on this? Are we are we extending access to people or organizations that maybe haven't historically worked in this problem, or just avoided it because they were concerned about? access to data or computational cost or things to that effect. And I think there's a lot more that we can do. I think there's a lot more we're going to do just from uh, what we're already underway. Uh, but I would argue it, it's fair to say that we've had a pretty big impact on the computer vision community from a geospatial perspective, particularly in the last year. Um, there's, both, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. We could say from a qualitative perspective or, or quantitative. Uh, why don't we just you know, start uh, on the quantitative, you know, first. Just, Todd, why don't you talk us through just how many participants have we had in the in these challenges, uh, mainly the last four, because five's underway and we're just now measuring that. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the project and when you, it you know, starts with an idea of something that sounds pretty neat to work on, and then you see, um, you know, a community start to develop around this and, and a lot of engagement. It's just, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great um, kind of effort to be a part of. Um, and so we generally have uh, several hundred participants uh, per challenge, um, as well as then, you know, it, it's it's been about 1,200 participants overall. So, of course, the data sets um, are available, you know, before, during, and after the challenges. So we'll talk a little bit more about how the, the you know, just the access to the data sets themselves. But um, the, the challenges have been a re really uh, rewarding part of this that have, you know, you know certainly uh, helped develop the community. And so, in particular, you know, I think SpaceNet 4 was one of the highlights. Um, as was mentioned yeah, earlier, yeah. this uh, featured um, high-off Nader data, uh, which was um, a uh, burst shot that was collected over Atlanta. 
uh, and uh, it was uh, you know the first time that an image of this nature had um, you know imagery of this nature had been released. So um, a lot of interest in that, uh, given the uniqueness of the data set. You bet. Uh, that was certainly of of the four. That was certainly the highest hit rate we had on Top Coder. Um, Joe, you know another metric to think about is is just access to the data. Who's been using it? Um, it's an important thing to consider, but we don't pull the, these data off once the challenges are over. They're left up there, hopefully in perpetuity, so people can use them um, uh, and iterate upon them as, as they're doing their own work. So what sort of rates have we had just from the pure data set perspective? Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is very exciting to me because one of the things I said at the top is, uh, I mean, I think we would all echo this, right? If nobody's using the data, then then sort of what's the point? What are we doing? Um, but um, yeah, I, we just saw these numbers today. Uh, so these are fresh as of this morning. Um, and there have been 414 million um, accesses of the data sitting in, in the S3 bucket. Um, that corresponds to uh, close to half a petabyte, so 431 terabytes of the data being accessed. Uh, and again, like this isn't necessarily data that people have to store locally, right? Like a lot of this can be used in place. Um, and then um, th I think this one's one of the most interesting to me, 81 countries. So yep. that represents uh, uh, data access from, from 81 countries, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, and then, you know, last but not least, you know, uh, I mentioned that the, in the beginning we've open sourced uh, 18 algorithms from uh, the, the challenges. So these are 13 building uh, footprint extraction algorithms and then uh, five road network extraction algorithms. Um, another thing that, that we have sound su found success in is not just people using that code or forking it uh, or starring it, but and then also uh, us publishing papers uh, using those models. And, uh, and Alexei, I know this is something uh, that we've been really excited about just, just recently due to the acceptance in ICCV. So that's an ex that for us, that's another example of building a community and in, uh, really recognizing success from being able to leverage those models and having research accepted into some of the leading conferences. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're extremely grateful to the reviewers of ICCB. Uh, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for us to be able to get out there to uh, Seoul in South Korea. Uh, and I think, as you mentioned, Ryan earlier, uh, we'll have a presence there and uh, you know, we'll have a poster there. We'll be talking to it. And uh, Intel, we will have a booth also at the at ICCB, the International Conference of Computer Vision. And so we'll probably also set up a few different demos so people can come and play with the, the MDI data set there and get a sense for what the imagery and the labels look like. So we're excited to you know, hopefully see some of you there. Yeah, and I, I, I know I'm, I'm cognizant of time, so I'll, I'll kind of close it out. But you know, as we mentioned, we're underway with SpaceNet 5. Uh, we're focused on roads, uh, uh, routing information, and timing. If you have any uh, interest in that, please check out spacenet.ai. Um, but it's also important that, you know, just given the timeline it takes to produce one of these challenges, we're already underway planning for six. And, uh, Alexia, why don't you just walk us through briefly what we're thinking about for six? Of course, yeah. So I mentioned earlier that we've been focusing really heavily on satellite imagery and looking at building footprints and road networks. So the next thing that we want to look at now is not just multispectral imagery, uh, which is just an extension of the traditional, like, uh, light spectrum, uh, but we want to look at particularly non-visible modalities. Uh, and in particular, we're looking at things such as short aperture radar, which is a form of radar that flies overhead and is able to capture uh, depth maps across vast regions. And one of the biggest advantages of short aperture radar, or SAR for short, is that because it's a depth sensor, it is uninhibited uh, by atmospheric noise as well as uh, clouds. 
so it's able to you know go through that traditional occlusion we might see because of cloud cover uh and yeah so that's one of the biggest things that we're looking at and potentially other uh sensors that we can try to fuse in so that you know people have an opportunity to play with different types of sensor modalities uh, which are all used by you know humanitarian as well as federal organizations and in addition to some of the technical work we're thinking about uh todd what are we doing on the operational side to expand our reach and depth of some of the work that we're doing so um you know the organizations that are represented here today with the sponsors were instrumental in uh, getting the spacenet project started um, but we're also considering additional partners to ex expand the size and scope um, of the project that's been one of our aspirations since the beginning so uh, you know, it's premature to go into all the details at this point but really exciting uh, i think future ahead for spacenet yeah absolutely and uh, before I close it, out, uh, close it out, Joe, anything else? Yeah, I mean, I think from, from our perspective, it's most interesting to see is sort of the, the models mature, um, how we can help non-experts use this work uh, in their own workflows, right? Um, and I think um, helping them leverage the work of this group, I think, is most interesting to us. Uh, well, thanks, Joe. Uh, Alexei, anything else on your end? Yeah, one of the things, too, I think, mentioned is that as Intel, you know, we're extremely interested in the algorithmic and data challenges presented uh, by overhead imagery and the data sets that we're releasing at SpaceNet. But one of the things that we also think of as a very promising kind of endeavor for us as a hardware manufacturer is the fact that, you know, and this is something that we have seen a lot in medical imagery, uh, these geotiff files that Joe described take up a lot of space on memory. Uh, they're just massive uh, files with a lot of metadata because they're, they're such high-resolution imagery files, they just naturally take, consume a lot of disk space. So what this presents is a technical challenge from a hardware perspective, because if you want to train a model on an entire chip of imagery, you will likely have to either re-chip that image into subtiles that are significantly smaller than the first one so that you can create batch sizes that are large enough to mount onto your accelerator for training, or you can choose to downsample your images to a significantly smaller size to the point that they're actually ingestible and consumable by your hardware. Uh, the problem with both of those approaches really is that on one end, if you reduce your batch sizes significantly and you keep the image resolution of what it was, satellite imagery is large enough that you're gonna maybe have to reduce your training batch to a batch size of one or two. Uh, for the technical folks in the audience, right, if you're training a model, a deep learning model, using backpropagation, and you have some different modes of regularization in there, such as batch normalization, if you're using a batch size of one or two, what that means is whenever you're training your model, your model only looks at one or two images at a time before making an update to the weight, then you're not gonna be able to obtain, likely, the most optimal solution, and your model is not gonna be very well regularized because it's training on such few samples at any one time. And so from a performance perspective, it's actually harmful for you to train with small batch sizes. And then similarly, on the other side, if we reduce the image size, then losing a lot of the context and a lot of the details present in the imagery that can help the model make a better classification or object detection. So what it is all really wraps around to is that for us as Intel, we view this as a key opportunity because one of the advantages of doing deep learning work on CPUs is that you are not memory bound. If you work on a Skylake processor on AWS, you have somewhere, you can get up to 380 gigs of RAM that are accessible to your CPU, which allows you to load 
you know, entire data set like cleanly onto RAM as full resolution NumPy arrays to work with uh, as part of your training, which is not something you can do with other types of accelerators. Uh, so that's one of the, you know, from a hardware perspective, why one of the things that we are most excited about with overhead imagery uh, is this kind of memory bounding challenge that is uh, exposed and hopefully solved by InfoSum accelerators. Um, then, yeah, that, that's really the big thing that I wanted to add there as far as that's concerned. No, that's perfect. All right. Any other additions, guys? All right. Well, guys, I can't thank you enough. You're all the ones that made SpaceNet possible, and it's been a pleasure to work with you. Looking forward to everything coming up uh, in the future. All right, guys. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, we'll be back in the next couple of weeks with a new episode. Make sure to tune in. Until then, take care. Space Club Rule number 33. It's not over until it's over, and it's never really over show if you'd like to hear more episodes or be kept up to date when we release a new show please make sure to subscribe to training data wherever you get your podcast if you'd like to find out more information and links to the different sites and data sets and presentations and all the different content that we discussed today you can find more at cosmicworks.org that's cosmic with a q spacenet.ai and our blog the downlink that's also with a q on medium as you're seeing here, we like the letter Q. Music was provided by the DMV Zone, and for those of you not in the DMV, that is the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, by Redline Addiction. A uh, big thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from Inky Tells Marketing Group. Also a shout-out to Hardcast Media uh, for serving as our studio. Thanks for listening, and take care. <laughs>